Well, good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. Uh, a lot of people ask me, they say, because this is my second time to preach, and they go, are you nervous? Do you get nervous about preaching? And as many of y'all know, I coached for seven years before coming into ministry here at Wayside, and I tell them it's just like I would feel before a big game. So I'm on the sidelines, we're about to have the kickoff, crowds cheering, lights, y'all aren't cheering, but crowds, you know, there. Hey, all right. Man. I feel right at home now, right at home. So, um, now it's a real blessing to be here, and so I'm just very, very privileged. Um, when I was 13 years old, I was playing on a summer baseball team, and we would travel around to different places in the state of Texas and, and play, on, play in these tournaments. And uh, one Saturday, we were in Austin for a tournament, and I was hanging out in the hotel room with a few of the other guys on the team. But one of the guys who was in there was my dear friend, Patrick Lesner. And what's pretty fun is Patrick Lesner is still one of my dear friends, and he's actually a part of our congregation. He'll be at the 11 o'clock service when I get to talk about him. And he was a great friend, but he was a year older, and he was one of those friends that would definitely kind of pick on me. I mean, those older guys, and most of the guys on the team were older, and they loved me, but they would pick on me, they would needle me, they would try to get under my skin, and Patrick had a special gift. I mean, he was unique in this regard. And this one summer day in 1994, I had had enough. I mean, I was no longer 12, I was now 13, you know, I had entered a new phase, and I felt like it was time to kind of announce my presence with authority, that I was going to let him know that there was a new sheriff in town. So I did what any mature 13-year-old would do, and I challenged him to fight me there in the hotel room. I said, all right, we're going to wrestle. We're going to get this. It's on. And I remember before it happened, in all honesty, I'm not even kidding you, I remember thinking this was going to be one of those changing of the guard moments. I mean, this was going to be one of those golden moments in my life on my quest to become a man. I mean, this was going to be life-altering. And unfortunately for me, um, Patrick had recently began competing as a wrestler. A detail that sort of slipped my mind in all my bravado. And Patrick and I engaged in what I would call a hand-to-hand combat and for probably less than 10 seconds before I was on my back looking up at the ceiling in too much pain to even be embarrassed. And just enormous amount of pain. And all I heard in the background was the other guys going, oh, Mike, you got killed. And I remember laying on my back looking up at the ceiling going, well, that's disappointing. (laughs) That's not what I had anticipated happening. And I never wrestled Patrick Lesnar again. And while that's a funny story, at least it's funny now, it was not funny then, I promise you. But there's a type of wrestling that I want to talk about this morning that is clearly uh, not funny. As a matter of fact, it's, it's downright painful. And the type of wrestling that I want to talk about this morning is wrestling with the will of God. It's a wrestling match that I would imagine every single person in here has partaken in at one point or another. This is the type of wrestling that happens when I, as a Christian either don't like what God has said or done, don't agree with what God has said or done, or don't want to comply with what God has said or done. Now, for those of y'all who have been on vacation or been in and out, or if this is your first time, this is the third in a four-part series that we're doing here over the will of God. In week one, our brother Will Davis brought the word and talked to us about what it means to want the will of God. 
And then last week, John Gordon was up here and he talked about what it meant to wait for the will of God. And next week, Don Yates is going to close up the series as he talks about what it means to walk in the will of God. But when we think about it, before we walk, we typically wrestle, don't we? We typically wrestle. And so when talking about something as big as the will of God, it's important that we define exactly what we mean by when we say that. And as we've been saying all series, when it comes to understanding the will of God, it's important to remember that God has multiple wills. And this is something we've been reiterating each week. We have what is called the hidden will of God, and we have what is called the revealed will of God. Now, when when we discuss the hidden will of God, what we are describing is God's secret, sovereign, divine will for all of humanity, for all of history. This is a will that we are not privy to. This is God's and God's alone. And we've been saying that over and over. The other will we've discussed is God's revealed will. And this is God's will for us revealed through Scripture and describes who God is, who we are, and how we ought to live while we're here on this earth. Now, when it comes to wrestling with the will of God, the first place that all of us most naturally gravitate to is wrestling with that hidden will, right? We say, why do things like 9-11 happen? What about the Holocaust? And we wonder how things like that fit in into our concept of God and how they work in his ultimate divine hidden will. And we, we, we cry, why? Why, God? And while this is an important and clearly understandable wrestling, and I certainly don't want to dismiss it nor avoid it. We're going to circle back to it. But I want to focus the bulk of our time today here at the beginning wrestling with the revealed will of God. Talking about what it means to wrestle with the revealed will of God. And the reason I want to start there is this. If we can't come to grips and if we can't navigate and if we can't wrestle in a healthy way with what God has chosen to reveal to us, then how in the world can we ever expect to have peace and understanding in our wrestling with what he has kept hidden? So what I want to do is start off on focusing about what we know about God and what he has revealed instead of conjecture or speculating on what he might be doing in each event in history. And that's why I want to start with this. And so to illustrate this type of wrestling, I would like for us to look at one of the most famous passages. It's actually two chapters. Some of the most famous passages, though, in all of Scripture So if you would please turn with me to Exodus 3, towards the front of your Bible. Exodus 3, as I spill water all over me in front of everybody. Great. Now, I chose these chapters for a couple of reasons. First off, I chose Exodus 3 and 4 because they're talking about Moses. And we know Moses is one of the heroes of the faith. Moses is a great servant of God, and yet without question, Moses wrestled. And so I wanted to look at Moses in that regard. And secondly, in these amazing chapters in Exodus, chapters 3 and chapters 4, this amazing discourse that's going to take place between Moses and God, Moses is going to object to God's revealed will. He wrestles with God's reveal no less than five times. 
Five times. And what's fascinating is that each time he wrestles, it comes from a different place. He gives a different reason for the wrestling. And what is even more incredible is when I look at the reasons that Moses wrestled, they are some of the exact same reasons that we wrestle over 3,000 years later. And to me, it just speaks to the timeless truths of Scripture and the timeless truths of man's utter depravity. Man's utter depravity. Now, for the sake of time and for our child care workers, my wife, my wife Victoria here, she works in the child care, and she's like, don't you go long. They don't, they don't like when you go long. We're going to skip around quite a bit. Clearly, this is a lot of verses, chapters 3 and 4. So I will be doing quite a bit of summarizing as we go. And I hate doing that because these are amazing chapters. So I highly encourage you to read them at home on your own. But we are actually going to begin in Exodus chapter 3, verse 10. But before we do, let me give you just really quick background. We're going to be talking about Moses. We know Moses. Forty years, lived in Pharaoh's court, living the Egyptian high life, right? Kills another Egyptian. Okay, because of what they're doing to his fellow Hebrew brothers, he flees out of fear, ends up being around, ends up being in Midian, which many scholars believe is East Africa. So while he's there, he establishes a new life, gets married, has a family, and works as a shepherd. So when we find Moses for another 40 years, so when we find Moses in Exodus 3, he's 80 years old, and he is far from the Egyptian high life that he once had, and in many ways, he is far from parting the Red Sea. He is an 80-year-old shepherd. He's nothing special in that regard. But in the first nine verses, some amazing things happen, right? He's walking. He's doing a shepherding thing. He's out there in, in the wilderness, and boom, bush is, comes on fire. This is a theophany. It's God there in the burning bush. God calls Moses by name. Moses comes over. God basically tells Moses, hey, I'm God. I'm the God of your father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He goes, I have heard the cries of my people in Israel. They've been held captive over 400 years. He says, I've heard them, and the time has come. I'm going to redeem my people, and I'm going to save them, and I'm going to take them from being held captive in Egypt all the way to the land that I had promised them, a.k.a. the promised land, right? the land of milk and honey. So that's what's going on the first nine verses. Surely Moses, who definitely is prostrate before God, but is also fired up. I mean, he's got to be exuberant about the revelation that he's just received in these first nine verses. That is until we get to verse 10. And that is where we'll begin. All right, verse 10. God speaking here. Therefore, come now and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, this being God, certainly I'll be with you and this shall be the sign to you that is I who have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. So Moses' victory dance, in essence, gets cut a little short When he is told, hey, by the way, you are going to be the one that's going to lead the people out of Egypt into the promised land. You're going to Pharaoh, baby. You are my guy. And how does Moses respond to this unbelievable opportunity? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? 
And so as we look at it, the first issue that causes Moses to wrestle with the revealed will of God is identity. Identity. Moses wrestles with God initially because of identity issues. Moses says, you want me? I'm an 80-year-old shepherd. I'm a nobody. And when it comes to identity, how many of us in here wrestle with God because either A, we have no idea who we are, or B, we have completely false understandings of who we are? We may say, or we may think, God could never use me because I'm so broken, I've made so many mistakes, I'm so far from him, that he could never use me, nor would want to use me. Or maybe we're on the complete other end, and we are so impressed with ourselves and our church attendance, and our self-righteousness, and our works, that if God were to show up in our backyard, in a burning bush, we would say, where you been? It's about time you showed up. You're a little bit late. And we would just feel that way. And both of those are completely wrong, right? Both of those are lies. When it comes to identity, my favorite verse probably in all scripture speaking to this point is Galatians 2.20, right? Where Paul's writing to the church in Galatia and he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And this life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. He says, it's no longer I who live. It is Christ living in me. And I think it's Colossians. He says, we are new creations, right? New creations in Christ. John talks about us being born again. This identity in Christ. And while there is certainly some humility to what Moses is saying here, As we go, I think what you see is what may look like humility really is a lack of faith. It's a lack of faith. Moses wrestles initially with God because he is focusing on who he is and not on who God is. And it causes him to wrestle. And my question for us this morning is, are you wrestling with God over identity issues? Have you believed lies about yourself or about God? Remember that Genesis 1 tells us that we are created in the image of God. Psalm 139 talks about how we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Ephesians 2 talks about how we are saved by grace, not of ourselves. 1 Corinthians 10 talks about everything we do ultimately should be done for the glory of God. Know who you are. Know your identity. Because if you look for it someplace else, you will most certainly wrestle. Most certainly. Well, Moses' second wrestling match occurs a few verses later in verse 13. Then it says, Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? So God's just told Moses, Hey, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be doing the heavy lifting, so to speak. And how does Moses respond? He says, what is your name? What is your name? Because I'm going to need more than just your word and, and your promise when I go see my peers. See, Moses' second issue that leads him to wrestling is credibility. Credibility. Moses is afraid how he will be received by his peers. Right? 
Ponder that thought for a moment. Moses is afraid how he will be received by his peers. It's a good thing none of us wrestle with that. It's a good thing none of us wrestle with how we will be perceived by our peers. I mean, I'm kidding. How many of us wrestle with God over the exact same thing? We take God's word and what it says about how we should live and how we should invest our life, and we worry about how our coworkers or our classmates or our neighbors or our family or our friends, how they will receive us if we actually live it out. And as you think about your life this morning, are you wrestling with God because you are afraid of what people will think if you really go all in? If you go all in for the gospel, if you commit to not letting culture or family or friends or the TV or the government tell you how to live, but rather what God has revealed in his word and through his spirit. And I know that's tough. I'm preaching to myself here, too. It's one of the humbling things about getting up here and preaching is you say things sometimes. You're like, it's, it's tough. But we are to be bold and stand on the word of God no matter how it may change how we are perceived or received. So Moses wrestles because of identity issues. Moses wrestles because of credibility issues. And thirdly, Moses wrestles because of good old-fashioned doubt, which is really part of all of these. But there's a special emphasis as we start to see on this third type of wrestling. Look at chapter 4, verse 1, skipping ahead a little bit. And I want to remind you, in the part that I just skipped, it's like one of the most incredible parts of the entire Bible where God asks, I mean, Moses asks God, hey, what is your name? And you know what God does? He actually answers him. He says, I'm the great I am in verse 14. I'm Yahweh, his covenantal personal name for Israel. I mean, this is incredible revelation that Moses is getting. But chapter 4, verse 1. Let's see how Moses responds. Then Moses said, what if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say, the Lord has not appeared to you. Moses now says to God, hey, that's great and all, God. Really cool name. Well done. But what if they don't believe me? And we start to see Moses' lack of faith really start playing out here in these last three objections. The first one, uh, you know, who am I? Maybe some humility. The second one, what is your name? Maybe some sort of fact-finding mission. But now we're in good old doubt, aren't we? We're in a good old place of a lack of faith. Moses basically tells God, hey, I need more guarantees. I need more evidence. Show me some signs. How do I really know that they're going to believe me? And once again, how many of us wrestle with God over the exact same thing? We think God has not done enough to earn our trust. We tell God, hey, I will fully trust you if, if you help me get this job. If you help me not get audited. If you keep me from getting this speeding ticket. If you heal my kid. If you help me beat this sickness, you fill in the blank. If you are wrestling with doubt this morning, I want you to know that you are not alone. Moses doubted too. My question to us is what is causing us to doubt? Is it really that we need more evidence? 
Is it really that God has not given us enough evidence? Because we have something much better than a burning bush, don't we? We have the cross. We have the word of God. We have the Holy Spirit residing in us. We have it way better than Moses did in Exodus 3. And so is evidence really the issue or is it our lack of faith? Is it our lack of faith that's causing us to doubt? So we have uh, identity, credibility, doubt, and fourthly, ability. Ability. Now, although God does not often perform miracles, boom, right when we ask. As we've been going along and Moses has these questions, the objections, God has been responding in kind. And has been answering his questions. And here, when, after verse 1, where he says, hey, kind of show me some more stuff. You know what God does in verses 2 through 9? Is he does three, he, tells, he shows him three incredible signs, right? He tells Moses, hey, throw your staff on the ground. Moses takes a staff, throws it on the ground. Boom, it becomes a snake. Ah! Moses freaks out. God says, don't worry. Grab the tail of the snake. Boom, grabs the tail of the snake, back to his staff. That's pretty cool. That's nice. And he says, no, I got more. He goes, I got more. Take your hand. He goes, okay. Put it in your bosom. Pull it out. Okay. Ah, it's got leprosy. He says, okay, don't worry. Put it back in your bosom. Pull it out. Boom, healed. He says, nice. He says, and if those two don't work, I'm going to give you one more. I'm going to give you kind of the ace of spades. He says, if they still don't believe you, take water out of the Nile, pour it on dry land, and when it hits the land, boom, it's going to become blood. These are incredible signs, right? I mean, these are incredible miracles that are happening right in front of Moses' eyes. So clearly with all those signs, Moses is certainly going to have all of his doubts erased, his confidence restored, and he's going to say, let's go. That's the coach in me right there. But that's not how Moses responds. Look at verse 10. Then Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. The Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now then go, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and will teach you what you are to say. Incredible, right? It's incredible. Moses says, hey, I appreciate your willingness to select me for this awesome job. Really humbling. And the burning bush, wow. And the signs, incredible creativity, God. Bravo. Bravo. But, ugh, man, I forgot to tell you one thing. There's something I forgot to mention. I'm not a good public speaker. I'm not good at this. I should have told you that earlier, God. I'm sorry. You might want to get someone else. And we roll our eyes and we kind of laugh at Moses a little bit, right? But once again, how many of us respond to God the exact same way? We say, hey, God, you might want to get somebody else. You might want to get someone more qualified, someone who's actually good at that. You might want to get someone who knows what they're doing. You know, as I think about this, this is one area where uh, I can really relate with my brother Moses. Because as, like, as I've told you many times, um, I've been a football coach for seven years. So a year ago, I'm coaching football and baseball at O'Connor High School, and I'm teaching senior government and economics. And this morning, I'll preach in front of 1,000 people. 
And so I, I know what it means to feel unqualified. And yet God has a way of qualifying the unqualified, doesn't he? That's one of those, I know it's kind of a Christian cliche, but like most Christian cliches, it's actually true. It's true. It's there. I mean, think about what, we, what we're seeing in front of us. He's taking an 80-year-old washed-up shepherd, and he says, you are going to lead my people out of the mighty land. You are going to Pharaoh. God is totally in the business of qualifying the unqualified. And so, brothers and sisters, what about us this morning? If you are wrestling with God this morning because you feel unqualified to be in his service, then you are actually right where you ought to be because we aren't qualified. We can't do it on our own. And that is the point. I can't have the marriage that I want to have. I can't be the dad that I want to be. I can't be the pastor that I want to be. And I certainly can't be the disciple of Christ that I yearn to be on my own strength and my own abilities. We must use the gifts that God has given us all the while being completely dependent upon him in the process. My eyes always have to be on the one who is the giver of the gifts instead of the gifts themselves. Amen? So we've seen Moses wrestle with God through identity issues, credibility issues, issues with doubt, ability issues. And lastly, we get to see Moses wrestle with God over flat out fear. Fear. Look at verse 13. But he said, please, Lord, now send the message by whomever you will. Or as the NIV captures it, maybe a little better in this regard. Pardon your servant, Lord, but please send someone else. Send someone. In other words, God, I am begging you, send someone else. Moses is desperate. And as I read about Moses here, I do not think Moses is trying to get out of this mission because he doesn't think it's important. And I don't think Moses is trying to get out of this mission because he's got better things to do in Midian. I think that Moses is trying to get out of this mission because Moses is afraid. And he is afraid to fail. He's afraid that he won't be up to the task. And that because of that, he will fail his people and he will fail God. And it causes him to be paralyzed by fear. And once again, what about us? Are we afraid of failing? Are we afraid to be what God has called us to be? Are we afraid to do what God has called us to do? Because we don't think that we are up for the task. And how are we to respond when we are afraid and when we are gripped by this fear? You know, as one reads the scripture, one thing that they will most definitely see is that God desires obedience in his people. And the good times and the bad, when it's easy and when it is hard. But even more than that, God desires faith. Faith. He desires faith in the good times and bad. He desires faith when it is easy and when it is hard. And he desires faith when we are joyful and confident, but also when we are afraid. He desires faith. The book of Hebrews tells us that it is impossible to please God without faith. And true obedience will always stem from true faith. Faith that God is ultimately 
good and trustworthy. But faith is essential. It is essential. And so if you are wrestling this morning, if you are wrestling with God for any of the reasons we have mentioned or any of the other reason, any other reason, I want you to know that wrestling is neither final nor fatal. It's part of the sanctification process. It's part of our life here as a believer. It's part of our existence on this earth. But it is not where God wants us to stay. It is not a permanent residence. It is not a permanent residence. After Moses' last objection there in verse 13, God has finally had enough. And he gets fairly angry at Moses. And he tells him basically, hey, you are going to do this. You're going to do it. And you know what's amazing is that by the end of chapter 4, Moses and his brother Aaron, they are doing exactly what God had told them to do. And God is doing exactly what he told them he would do. If you look down at verse 29, it says, Then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the sons of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. He then performed the signs in the sight of the people. So the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, then they bowed low and worshiped. God was faithful. Moses ultimately responds to the revealed will of God with faith and obedience after the wrestling and even in some ways in the midst of it. And Moses ultimately leads his people out of Egypt. Moses wrestled, and in many ways the rest of his life, he continued to wrestle. But Moses responded with faith and obedience. And brothers and sisters, that is how we are to respond to wrestling. That being said, Moses never enters the promised land, does he? Forty years in the wilderness leads the Israelites, but never actually enters the land. And this pained Moses very much. As a matter of fact, in Deuteronomy 3, he pleads with God. He's like, God, please let me enter the promised land. You know what God does? He basically rebukes him. He says, it's not happening. You're not going in and don't bring it up to me again. And, and, and what, in some regard, Moses dies heartbroken because he never actually enters the promised land that he'd waited so long to go into. And when I read about the life of Moses, my initial response is probably like most of y'all's. That doesn't seem fair, God. That doesn't seem fair. Despite the fact that we just read a little bit about Moses wrestling, Moses is an incredibly faithful, committed servant of the Lord. Moses is one of the heroes. I mean, if anybody should have gotten into the promised land, it sure to me seems like it should have been Brother Moses. And yet he doesn't. God says no. And, that, and we know from Numbers 20 that the, the reason given is because Moses strikes the rock Water comes out. He takes credit for it instead of giving it to God. But that's one time in 40 years. How many of us have messed up one time in 40 years? I'm 31. I'm not even there, but I know I've, I've, I've accomplished this. It doesn't seem like a worthy for a DQ from the promised land, does it? I mean, that seems pretty, pretty rough. What are you doing, God? You call him out of Midian. You say, leave my people to the promised land. 40 years right on the cusp and then no because you messed up it you know questions like that bring me to a transition ultimately where I want to end today's message as we spend a few minutes looking at what it means to wrestle with the hidden 
will of God. The things that don't make sense to us, and they're everywhere. Turn on the news, school shootings, war, untimely deaths, cancer, bad things happening to good people. What is up with that? And the answer and correct answer as to why the world is the way it is, is sin. Sin is why there's so much brokenness. Sin is why disasters and tragedies happen. Sin is why we oftentimes wrestle with God. Sin is ugly and sin is catastrophic. Sin is rebellion against God. Sin grieves the heart of God. And sin has huge consequences both temporally and eternally. And yet, while I know sin is the source of all this evil and tragedy, it is not that simple, is it? It's not that simple. I wish it was. How can God, who is all-powerful, omnipotent, who is loving and good, be the creator, sustainer, and be sovereign over a creation where so much heartache and tragedy and evil exist? I mean, this is tough. Tough stuff. And while there are no shortage of theories or thoughts on how this can be possible, some which are clearly better than others, the truth of the matter is we don't know. I don't know. I do not know all the ways of God. And that shouldn't shock me. It shouldn't shock me. It shouldn't shock me that the God of the universe, God, the infinite one, the one who exists eternally in Trinity, the one that who exists before, the one who existed before creation would have some things that my peanut-sized brain cannot figure out. As the great church father Augustine once said, we are speaking of God. What marvel if thou dost not understand? For if thou understand, he is not God. So this is not a new struggle. This is not a new wrestling. You know, many of my good friends who are not Christians, and even some of my Christian friends, they tell me, Michael, that answer is a cop-out. You can't just take evil and say, mystery of God. They say, that's a cop-out. You're avoiding the issue. And I admit that this answer may not be the most satisfying to a humanity that thinks that God owes us all the answers to our questions. We think we're entitled to knowing everything. But is it really a cop-out to say that there are some things about God, and especially His sovereign, hidden will, that I cannot comprehend? Not because they are illogical, but because some ways God who created logic is also beyond logic. He's past it. He's past it. He's deeper. That is not a cop-out, my friends. That is a reality. And we need to be humble as we approach God. This is God we are talking about. And some things he has chosen to keep hidden. You know, as I think about the hidden will of God, the truth is that we all keep things hidden at times, don't we? And we keep things hidden from people we love. And we keep things hidden from people we love, not necessarily because we're trying to hide some sin in a closet or something. There are valid reasons for keeping things hidden. Maybe because A, they just won't understand. They can't comprehend it. B, 
Maybe because if we tell them, it won't be of any benefit. As a matter of fact, it may be harmful. Or C, it's just none of their business. You know, I think about my kids. I've got a six-month-old named Luke and a two-and-a-half-year-old named Elijah. And my two-and-a-half-year-old, man, he is, he, we're having conversations. That dude is, he's, he's two. That's all I can, y'all know what I'm talking about if you've had two-year-olds, right? I love that guy. I mean, that is my son. I love Elijah, but I do not tell him everything I know. For one, he can't understand it. So when we're laying together at night or we're praying together, I'm sitting down, I say, all right, Elijah. I don't say, okay, Elijah, get out your notepad. We're going to continue our work on our systematic theology. (laughs) It's not going to do any good. He's two, right? So he can't comprehend it. Secondly, maybe it doesn't do him any good. As a matter of fact, it may be harmful to illustrate this. Like I said, Elijah is too, but he is clearly convinced that he can drive daddy's car. Like he is convinced. So if I put him in the car and I don't buckle him up in three seconds in the car seat, that dude is over the top, front seat, three o'clock, nine o'clock, let's roll. I mean, that's Elijah. And I don't go up to him and go, Elijah, you can't drive with the car off. Here's the key. Turn it on. You hear that? That's the engine running. But you're still not there yet. Here's the gear shift. You see that big fat D? Get it there, buddy. And you see that pedal? Not that one, but that one. That's the gas. Put it in D. Punch the gas. You're good to go, buddy. I'm not going to do that. He's two. He could destroy himself. He could destroy my car insurance rates. It's not a good thing. So I don't tell him how to drive a car because I love him. (laughs) That's good. That's good. And I'll probably be up here talking about that when it comes. And lastly, it may just not be in his business. I work with the college and singles here at church. Sometimes they come up and meet with me in my office or we'll have coffee over Starbucks and they'll share some tough stuff, right? Things going on in their life things going on at home. And I don't go home and say, Elijah, come sit down. Let me tell you what Billy Bob told me today. Why? Because it's not any of his business. But it by no means means that I don't love my son. I love him with everything I got. I will do anything for him and I care about him. And because of that, I will not reveal all that I know. Not going to do it. It's a hidden will, and it is, a, it is hidden for a reason. As Dennis Covington once wrote, mystery is not the absence of meaning. It is the presence of more meaning than we can comprehend. Mystery is not the absence of meaning. It is the presence of more meaning than we can comprehend. And the question before us this morning that we'll finish with is, God, can I trust you? Are you worthy of my trust, God? Are you trustworthy? Because it is a hidden will, and it's hidden for a reason. It is a mystery, and it is a mystery for a reason. And one day, all things will make sense. And one thing, one day, all things will be restored. But until then, God basically looks us in the eye, and he says, Michael, you are going to have to trust me. You're going to have to trust me. And that's what faith is. And I say all of this all the while knowing that there is tremendous heartache in this place. There's people here who have lost loved ones, a spouse, people who have lost kids, 
people here who have lost parents, people here who have been abused, people here who have been raped. And it is hard to come to grips with how that could possibly be within any type of will that God has. It's incredibly tough. And whenever I wrestle with things, these things, and whenever I wrestle with the hidden will of God, and I'm a, I mean, I'm a pastor. I want easy answers to tell people when they come talk to me and they say, why? I want easy answers. So I, I've, I've wrestled without question. I know it's hard. But whenever I'm struggling or aching with the, and questioning things about God's goodness, God's fairness, God's character, the love of God, you know where I ultimately go to? I go to the cross. I go to the cross. You want to know whether or not you can trust God? Look at the cross, right? You want to know whether or not God loves you? Look at the cross. You want to know whether God is good? Look at the cross. You want to know whether God is merciful? Look at the cross. You want to know whether God is forgiving? Look at the cross. If you want to see right into the heart of God, look at the cross. If you are wrestling this morning and are questioning whether or not you can truly trust God with your life, may I invite you to look to the cross. The cross where the Savior of the world, God in the flesh, willingly went for you and for me out of his great love for you and for me. You know, there's a mystery to God without question, but there is a love to God that is also without question. There's a love to God that is without question. You want a sign? You want a miracle? It's right there. It's right there. That God of the world, the God of the universe, would become a man and hang on a cross for you and for me. That is a miracle. I close today with lyrics from the great hymn, At the Cross, by Isaac Watts. It says, Was it for crimes that I had done, he groaned upon the tree? Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. Well, might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in when Christ the mighty maker died for man the creature's sin. Thus might I hide my blushing face while his dear cross appears, dissolve my heart in thankfulness and melt my eyes to tears. But drops of grief can never repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. Let's pray. God, we come to you this morning honest with the fact that there's some things about you that we don't understand. And there's some things about this world that are tough. There's some things we don't like that we want you to do something about it. And yet, God, you answer us in a way that although we don't always like it, you answer us in a way that is a testimony to your goodness and to your faithfulness and to your love. You say, look at my son. Look at the cross. It's right there. God, I pray if there's anybody in this room that has not received that grace, that has not received your son as their savior, God, that this morning would be the morning where they say, God, they admit that I am broken. I can't do it on my own. Sin has wrecked my life. 
and that I need you, God. And I pray that this would be their moment of salvation. This would be the beginning of their, that new life, that new creation, born of God. God, help us with our wrestling. Help us with the things that we don't understand and help us with the wrestling of the things that we do understand. For you are good and you are faithful and you are trustworthy. And to you be the praise now and forever. And it's in your mighty son's name that we pray. Amen. There'll be prayer partners up here. Have a wonderful Sunday.